Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger, and I am joined by Wilkie Law, as always. Will, how are you? Doing great. Enjoying this summer, Texas summer heat. Yeah, it's it's about 60 and rainy in Wisconsin, so I uh, don't want to make you jealous on that, though. Well, it's already 92 and bright and sunny here, so... Uh, well, we are super thrilled um, and excited to have Zach Lois on the podcast today. Zach, how are you? Good. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a great honor. Yeah, yeah. I was really excited to connect with you because I, I follow you on Instagram, and there were two things I really liked was um, the picture you posted with the Raleigh Fingers t-shirt and the mustache <laughs> that went with it. I thought that was fantastic. Um because uh, like you, and we talked a little bit, you grew up in Wisconsin before you moved to New York. You're in New York right now, right? Yeah, that's correct. I'm in uh, Syracuse, New York, so upstate New York. And uh, even though it's Yankees country, I still got a root for So like I was saying, um, you know, we're both both from Wisconsin. You said you're, you're Milwaukee area. You grew up in Milwaukee area? Yeah, kind of down by Spike uh, Milk, that's the southeast corner, small town called Burlington. Yeah, is... Is Burlington where Tony Romo is from? That is correct. I went to high school with him. No, you didn't really? I did. He was a couple years older than me. Oh, my goodness. Was he, uh, was he like, did people think he was going to be an NFL quarterback when he was in high school? I don't know about NFL, but definitely uh, college. I don't think anyone saw and you know, predicted the, uh, the future he was going to have, but I think everyone knew that he was going to go on and play in college. Yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. So, Will, do you want to go ahead and kind of give Zach the rundown of you know what we try to do with the podcast and why we have him on here? Sure. Um, well, Zach, um, again, thank you for uh, giving, us, giving us a piece of your day and being a part of the conversation. And... Um, the whole purpose of the podcast project is to to really kind of allow authentic teacher voices to come out. Uh, we believe that teachers are the change agents that make the difference, um, not only within our school, but then within our society. So we wanted to kind of give teachers an opportunity to, to express their authentic voice outside of curriculum, outside of the classroom, and just kind of, you know, Again, let everybody know what's going on, and maybe other teachers who may be in similar situations can actually kind of glean from the knowledge from all the teachers that we we try to put on the podcast. Awesome. Well, I, I hope I can live up to the standard. Oh, for sure. We we know you will. All right. So um, we'll jump right in with the first question. Um, could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and your military background? Uh, so I grew up in a small town in uh, southeastern Wisconsin. Uh, wasn't a lot of opportunities there, and I, you know, growing up, I always wanted to get out and see the country and the world. Um, you know, I wasn't a great student growing up, uh, other than in social studies and a PE. I was that, you know, pretty standard, rambunctious uh, boy. I couldn't sit still. Um, and I was entirely focused on athletics in high school and, and even in undergrad. Um, and I'd always wanted to join the military since I was four, and I really don't know why. My mom 
Um, just that I came out of the uh, the sandbox one day and said I wanted to be a commando, even though I didn't know what that was. Uh, I didn't have a big, you know, military service history in my family. Uh, my father was a, a diver, Navy diver in Vietnam, and my grandfather was in World War II, but I mean, nothing really significant. Um, and then I read an article in uh, middle school, and it was comparing uh, the Green Berets to the, the Indiana Joneses of the military, uh, because they they learn different languages, they, they understand culture, and they, they live with the you know, indigenous forces, and I was I was obsessed with Indiana Jones growing up, so that kind of hooked me right there. Um, <laughs> my parents were really against me joining the military, um, but I, I enlisted in the National Guard uh, in college to help pay for school. And then uh, after college, I went on active duty, and I did three years in the regular Army, and then I, I tried out for and was selected for special forces. Uh, I graduated special forces training, and then I got to uh, operate and travel all over the uh, the country and the world. I was primarily in the, the Middle East and Latin America. And then uh, I got married, and uh, I was sick of being gone nine months out of the year, and my wife and I wanted to start a family, so I got out of the Army in 2015. Oh, wow. Oh, oh man. Well, obviously, thank you, know, thank you for your service, especially in the you know, the time and space that, uh, that we live in, but we're excited to kind of hear how, how that transitioned into you, uh, becoming a teacher then. Yeah. Um, so I always knew I wanted to teach at some point. Um, I, I thought it would try, you know, I'd do my 20 years in the military and get out and, you know, be a college professor. Uh, I taught a lot in the military you know, contrary to what people think about uh, Special Forces Green Berets, we're not Rambo. That's kind of a myth. Um, we're actually considered the, the teachers of the military. So we, we go into other countries and we work with host nation forces or we recruit, train, advise indigenous forces to either overthrow a government or, you know, protect against an insurgency, that kind of stuff. So spend a lot of time uh, working with other uh, other militaries training them on various aspects. Um, so we get lumped into the whole, you know, special operations with the SEALs and the Rangers as well. And we do do the cool missions like that as well. But our, our primary job was, was to teach. Um, so when I got out, I, I made money, you know. I, I just thought, well, I'm going to make a whole bunch of money and that, that's what everyone wants to do. And then after a year and a half in the business world, uh, I really just did enjoy what I was doing. I was coming home every day, just asking myself, you know, what am I doing with my life? I'm not making a difference at all. Um, so I realized that, you know, teaching was, was my second calling. So I, I went back and got another master's uh, this time teaching. I had already had a bachelor's in history and a master's in military history. Wow. And then I, uh, I decided to become a city, instead of the community college or something like that, I decided to become a city school teacher here in Syracuse. They have a, a very large immigrant and refugee population. And then based on my, my background, you know, I, have, I really have a, a passion for those students. And it's a very high-stakes environment um, in our city because we currently are between 50 and 50% high school graduation rate. Wow. I think it, it's pretty 
place to kind of kind of Houston, with the large immigrant population and refugees. Right. 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 And that's that's about yeah, part for the course here also. Wow. Wow. So that's a you kind of took a, a I'm not gonna say a long road around, but it definitely was a one that was very um very well seasoned. Gives you a very diverse background to deal with kids and deal with the environment of education itself. Yeah, it's, uh, it's probably pretty unorthodox throughout. <laughs> awesome. So, growing up, who was your favorite teacher and why? Uh, that's a, that's a tough question because I did I did have a lot of really good teachers growing up, and for a lot of different reasons. I, I think the teacher that I think really kind of helped set me up for future success was uh, Mr. Everson. He was my seventh grade English teacher. And uh, we did a class play about uh, Helen Keller. And there weren't many speaking parts in the play. And the narrator had over the, the large majority of the speaking throughout the play. And he picked me to be the narrate, narrator, even though I, you know, I'm not a very good speaker. Um, I don't even like the sound of my own voice. And there was a lot you know, more gifted students in the class. But him picking me gave me a, a lot of confidence. And I think that kind of set me up for success later on. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting that we've asked that question, I know, probably almost over 100 times. And the majority of the time, what makes that teacher the, uh, the favorite is not really about any, any kind of pedagogy or any type of curriculum. It's strictly built around how do you make, how, how they make you feel? Or, yeah. you know, something related to something that you remember the most about it. And I think you had a post on there about, you had posted something about students won't remember the test that you gave them. Um, and it just really kind of hit me. I was like, you know, we, we, we focus so much on standardized testing and doing, making sure kids meet the mark. But the reality of it is, is that that's not what they're going to remember. They're going to remember how we make them feel, you know, what they could carry from us to their next, you know, next, um, to their next, uh, you know, next step of, the, of their journey. So I think that's interesting that, that that's everybody's pretty much their MO. Yeah, it definitely seems that it's more about relationships than contact. Yeah. Right. Right. So, in your eyes, what is the value of a great teacher? Um, I think a, a great teacher is priceless. Um, not not only to the individuals, you know, the students they influence, but to the society as a whole. We are we're producing a next generation. Uh, there's a there's a Greek proverb, and it says, uh, "Society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they shall shall never sit in." I think that. That sums up teaching mm-hmm. to a whole because uh, a lot of times we're going to, you know, we're planting seeds in these students' heads and, you know, they might not grow to fruition until, you know, a few years down the line, you know, and then they sit back and, you know, I remember one that, you know, uh, Mr. Lloyd taught me that, you know, eighth grade. So we, we really don't get to see the fruits of our labor, but we, we're just planting seeds in these students' heads that, that hopefully grow uh, into strong trees. And what grade level do you teach? I didn't, 
I did sixth grade this year. Uh, next year, I'm moving up to eighth grade. Oh, okay. In that middle school realm, and I, you know, I, one of the things I told teachers, um, I was a new teacher mentor coordinator, and I told them, I say, you have to realize it's difficult for for us as educators because every year we plant seeds, and it seems like we're passing on empty buckets or empty pots of, of dirt. But we have to realize that in that dirt are the seeds that we've planted that another teacher is going to be, be able to benefit from. And we're kind of paying forward our craft by making sure that our students are well prepared for that next leg of their journey. So, and I think I can say, it's, you, you, you hit it on the head when you said we're planting seeds that we'll never see. Yeah. You know, you will get those ones that will come back. You know, this is my 12th year in education. And, you know, when I get students to come back and say, hey, here's an invitation to my graduation. Can you please come and come to my graduation? Or, hey, I'm having a graduation party. Can you come be a part of it? You know, it brings me joy because then it reminds me that this is why I do it. This is the reason that we're in this, this field. It's because of this idea that we're making a difference that's going to pay off down the line. Not immediately, but down the line. Yeah, definitely. So, I can't wait. Can't wait for that moment when one of my students graduates high school and comes back. Hmm. It is it, it is the feeling, you know. It is the feeling to sit and know that I had a hand in that. You know, I love the way they sit graduates in rows. I think Kyle and I talked about this before that it, it reminds you of a field when you're looking at it from high up and you just see the rows and rows and it's like I had a hand in part of that and helping create that and that's just that's probably, that's that million dollar moment that that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the priceless nature of, of a great teacher. Yeah. So, um, so tell me this. What is your take on the state of education today? Uh, you know, they, the government tries to make education a one-size-fits-all kind of uh, solution. Um, that kind of ended up like an Ill, ill-fitting suit. Um, each, each state, each school district, each school has its own strengths, its issues, and its challenges. So it's pretty hard to test every student with standardized tests on the same standard if they aren't all starting the right the race at the same point. You know, every student is starting from a different point. Like I look at my ENL, my ESL students, uh, they're accomplishing amazing things. Some of them have only been in the United States for two years. Uh, you know, they didn't even get to learn their, their home language correctly. And now we're expecting them to learn English. Their parents don't speak English. And there's not a lot of um, support there outside of school to get them to where they need to be. But then we're expecting them to pass a standardized test to graduate high school. Um, so it, it's pretty frustrating from an, an educator standpoint of what our students are dealing with. Yeah. And I love your post that standardized tests are the opiates <laughs> of education. Yeah, oh, I think that sums it up pretty well. That hits it right on the head. I mean, it, when I read that, initially my mind just went to the fact that we're living in a state in a time where everybody's focused on the opiate, opioid epidemic that's taking place that's created at the hands of man. You know, and then we're looking at the same thing in education that's being, again, we're looking at the consequences that we knowing that it's still at the hand of men who are making decisions that are not in the best interest of the children, but in, in the best interest of the system and the policy. 
and that yeah. we have to shift that mindset of really focusing on the individual children and how we can basically, I mean, I look at school as saying, how can I help students become better people? Yeah. You know, how, how can we equip them to be better people? Yeah, we need to look at the, the whole the whole student philosophy and not just, you know, even standardized tests, what do they typically test on when you take your APTs, SATs, math, science, and English. So you mm-hmm. could be brilliant, you know, you could be the next Beethoven or Mozart or uh, Picasso, but because it's not on a standardized test, they're going to deem you a failure. Wow. You know, you can overcome it. I mean, I, I got a nine on my, my math portion. Um, you know, I made up for it in, you know, my English and science portion, but, you know, I've just, to this day, I've struggled with math, but, you know, I got through. But how many students is that the, the make or break for them from graduating high school or getting into college? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know our dropout rates increase after ninth grade once kids can't pass algebra. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's kind of one of those predictors that determine if the kid's going to drop out or not, whether or not they pass algebra one. So you're absolutely right. So with that being said, you kind of talked about the whole student approach. What is your philosophy of education that you subscribe to? Um, so I'm, I'm very student-focused when it comes to my personal philosophy, um, especially as a, as a social studies teacher where I'm not dealing with the hard, like, sciences or math where you're right or wrong. A lot of it comes down to looking at things from uh, a different perspective, you know, hitting every issue from multiple to help students understand things. Uh, I really focus on teaching students how to think, not what to think. Uh, our kids have a, a pretty good bullshit meter, so they know when you're pushing an agenda on them. And, you know, so many people in their lives are trying to indoctrinate kids, whether it's celebrities, politicians, um, you know, just about everyone. So I really feel it's my responsibility is not to push or pull students down a, a certain path or way of thinking, but to kind of merely hold the, the lantern as they walk through the darkness to help illuminate their own chosen path. Um, I really focus on next year, I'm, I'm going to do it even more, but you know, the first two weeks of school, I just want to build relationships with them and kind of understand who they are and what makes them tick, what their interests are. So if I can find their interests and their passions, I can customize my lesson plan. Uh, in regards to history towards what they're already interested in. Um, you know, so if I get a whole bunch of kids that are in love with music and fashion and, you know, social justice or what, you know, women's rights, any of those, I, I'm going to deviate off of, you know, seeing nothing but battles and stuff like in remembering faith. I'm going to focus on what they're already very interested in and just, you know, massage um, my lesson plan to meet what really makes them fit. I also believe that students, you know, most students, myself included, I I knew by middle school what I was really interested in and what I wanted to specialize in. I, I think they should have more specialization in high school. Kids typically know by that point. A lot of kids, not all kids, but a lot of kids know what they're really into. So, you know, let them go down their own path. Don't force them to take subjects that they're not going to do well in or they're not interested in. I understand that everyone wants you know, students being very involved in STEM because that's important for the country and, uh, you know, um, the future. But kids really into art or music or, you know, PE, let them, let them excel at that. 
additionally, I, I just try to make things fun and memorable. You know how it feels to be a kid who, you know, couldn't sit still in class, had too much energy. So that's kind of my uh, personal philosophy. Right, right. So you were so you're mentioning getting getting to know your kids. Um, on the kind of the flip side of that, how how open are you or have you been about your military experience with them? I mean, do do you do they want to ask you a lot of questions about it? I I'm not open with it right away. It's something I kind of you know bring out a little later in the year. Um, you know, there's there's a couple of pictures on my desk, so if they look at my desk, they'll pick up on it. Um, but it's not something I, I bring up openly. I mean, it's it's a very important uh, aspect of my life. Um, it was a, a great chapter in my life, but it's not the entire book. Um, so I don't want my my entire life to be you know highlighted just by that experience. So I, I don't really bring it up um, right away. Right, right. But once you once you do start to talk about it, are kids generally pretty respectful with you when they ask questions and, and stuff like that? Um, kids and adults, the, uh, the first word, the first question they always ask is how many people are you killed? Um, so, yeah, even adults do. I'm always amazed by how many adults ask that question. Um, you know, the myth is one of the other myths of the military, and I think this has to do a lot with the, the civilian-military divide. Uh, but the military is only 1% of the U.S. population. Um, special operations is the 1% of the 1%. Um, so, yeah, we're doing all the cool, you know, missions and stuff that you see in movies and TV and books and like that. But 85% of the entire military is non-combat jobs. So you have... You know, your medical, your transportation, your intelligence, your communication, all those other, all those other people um, that aren't focused, you know, on combat. And then, you know, 95% of the, the personnel that served in Iraq and Afghanistan never even fired their weapons. So there's a lot of other, like, more interesting questions they could ask, like, what, what job did you do? Where, where did you go? You know, what countries did you see? Um, but, yeah, they usually ask how many people have you killed. Yeah. And obviously, you know, I don't answer that. You know, I still haven't found, like, a good, you know, diversion from that. Yeah, I don't, I, I guess I don't see how you could really have a good diversion from that. So, you know, what habits, you know, you said you got out in, in 2015. What habits and disciplines have you really carried with you um in your time now outside the military that you learned while you were in there? Uh, quite a few, actually. Um, you know, the parallels between teaching and the military are actually really abundant. Um, I think the, the biggest habit that I have is, is getting up and exercising before work. Like, just like, you know, back in the military, we'd have PT every morning. Uh, I actually get up now earlier than I did when I was in the military. So I'm, my alarm goes off at 4.08 here. You know, I get up, have a cup of coffee, read the paper, and then I'm down in the gym. I have a gym in my basement, uh, and I work out before I go in, into school. And it really just helps me get my mind ready for the day. It's kind of like a, a meditation. You know, it gives me a chance to go through my checklist of what I need to do throughout the day. So exercise. 
exercise is still really important to me, um, both mentally and physically, uh, in teaching as well as it was for the military. And then the other is uh, planning. So, you know, in the military by nature, you're always planning. Uh, with teaching, I think you always have to be looking ahead, planning, you know, either more lessons or, you know, assessments that you want to do with the students, all those kind of things. Right, right. And I think, you know, we, both Wilkie and I can say that, you know, the, I'm, I'm a big proponent also of the getting up and, and exercising before, uh, before work, because I feel like I need a lot less coffee after I work out throughout the day. Like the days when I don't work out early, I feel like I'm drinking way more coffee to just get through the day. Um, and I really like what you said too, about how it's kind of a, setting yourself up mentally to to tackle the rest of your day. Yeah, I, I still crush coffee regardless. I, you know, I'm an eight cup a day kind of guy. <laughs> that's a little that's a little more than I drink, but we you gotta appreciate it. You gotta sometimes you gotta go hard on the coffee. Yep. So the nectar of the gods. Yeah. So I love it. I love it. So you know, with, you said, you know, your experience, um, you know, in special operations, especially you, you talked about how you're learning, you know, from the cultures of the places you are and you're studying and learning language and becoming a part of that. So how does that, how has that experience really, um, impacted you and helped you, you know, in teaching social studies, especially? Uh, there's, there's so many, um, so many parallels, uh, I think the biggest thing is diversity, just being, you know, there's 368 million people in the United States, from, you know, we are the most diverse country in the history of the world, um, so when you join the military, you are joining, you know, with people from all over the country, different walks of life, uh, you know, different perspectives on a lot of things, so you really learn to, to work with other people, build rapport with other people. Um, and then for me, specifically because of my background, um, understanding the importance of culture, uh, that's really helped me with my, my E&L students. Uh, one of my students uh, was, is an Iraqi immigrant, and we got to talking one day, and it turned out that he grew up two blocks away from where I was in Iraq. And we talked about, you know, the, the falafel stand at the corner that made the best falafels in all Baghdad. So... You know, that, that was really uh, beneficial, having that experience. Um, and then the ability to, you know, just build rapport, find out what the common ground is. You know, when you sit down with people and you eat their food and you, you talk about, you know, what's going on with their lives and what they're interested in, it gives you kind of an insight to how they think. So when we were uh, traveling around, we always played soccer, even though we were a bunch of Americans. We were not good at soccer. It was always our way to kind of build that rapport with the people we were working with. It's kind of like a, there's a book called uh, Three Cups of Tea. And it was about this guy who built all these schools in, uh, I believe, Pakistan. And his philosophy was, you know, three cups of tea. The first cup of tea were strangers. The, the second cup of tea were friends. And the third cup of tea were, were family. So trying to, you know, build that rapport with and students is absolutely key. Um, and I think the, the other thing is le- leadership is the biggest one. 
you're a 20 year old team leader in the army, you're responsible for five guys. As a squad leader, you know you're responsible for 10 or 11. And then a platoon sergeant, platoon leader, you're at around 30, 35 guys that you are you are responsible for. And it's the same thing at Eastern. You know you are you're setting the the standard, and you are trying to to lead by example. You're trying to figure out what makes everyone fit, how you can motivate them. Who you need to push, who you need, who you need to pull, and who you need to be kind of a lot softer with in an approach. So that I mean, I I could talk all day about the similarities. Hmm. So you know, being that you have diverse experience and you teach, you know, diverse kids, how how then do you work to try to give give kids like the real world perspective of of diversity and differences and all things because. I mean, we see in our country on the daily almost that it's, you know, we're very divided and there's a lot of people talking really loud, but how do you really work to help kids, you know, strive to just get an understanding of a topic or a culture or a group of people without having to, um, you know, make judgments about those people? Um, I think just, you know, talking about my different experiences, you know, telling telling the stories of all the different places I've been and the people I've met, um, you really come to the realization that you know, human beings aren't that much different from each other. Kind of focused on, you know, you go anywhere in the world, they're focused on their family, their friends. They enjoy good food, uh, and they typically want better lives for their, their children. You know, I do try to stress how great the opportunities the students have in the United States. Uh, compared to other countries, and you know, it's pretty obvious that there's a lot of divisiveness right now, um, and we all often not only see things from one perspective, but I really focus and do a lot of exercises with them of looking at things from different perspectives. Um, it's, it's critical not only for, for history, but politically, socially, you know, etc. Um, that way, they're they're not. You don't have those blinders on to the way things are. Um, they really, you know, especially even with a, a diverse classroom, I really thought, you know, how we're all in this together, everyone in the classroom, regardless of, you know, race, religion, um, socioeconomic background, just realizing that we are all on the same team, um, and we're really not that much different from each other. And that's pretty crucial to, you know, our survival and success as a group. Right. Right. I guess then, you know, the, the follow-up to that would be, do you ever get, you know, overly frustrated or, or have a, you know, a blow-up at kids who maybe lack that perspective? Like you said, that they don't appreciate how good they have it and the opportunities they have here? Um. I've never blown up on a kid, you know, I, I would, you know, when I first got out, because I kind of lived in a bubble for, you know, a long time, um, being in the military and kind of traveling around with the same group of guys over and over. Um, I would get frustrated with the adults when I first got out, um, just not realizing it, uh, particularly, you know, my own friends and family. But, uh, you know, now I try to focus on the things that I can influence and control. So I just try to, you know, instead of preaching to the kids, I kind of, I try to get them to trip, trip over the truth. Um, 
know, because kids don't want to be talked to or told like this is the way you should think. Kind of got to let them figure it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really. I've I've never heard someone say trip over the truth, but I think that's a really good way. And it goes back to your point that that students can sniff out when you're not being real with them or you have you have an agenda. And that's, you know, that's what I realized even to, you know, because I I left northern Wisconsin and was in Houston eight years. And as soon as I got there, that was the one thing I realized about every kid, even in middle school, was that they can tell when you're not being real with them and they would rather have you be real with them and, and them not necessarily like you than for them to think you're fake. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a corn-fed white guy from Wisconsin that looks like, you know, looks like I'm from Germany. Um, I'm not going to really be able to uh, blend in in certain situations. So I just try to be myself and keep it as real as possible. They they know as soon as you're taking it. Right, right, and and to kind of to wrap up this part of the conversation, um, you know, uh, one of the staples of the military is being disciplined. So how does, you know, what is what is not necessarily disciplining kids, but but what are some of the disciplines that you use in your classroom to try to really help you be successful as a teacher, and and disciplines you think that could benefit a lot of other teachers. Um, it really goes back to the whole to leadership. You know, we do a disservice to teachers by just calling them teachers. You know, they really should be called leaders um, because oftentimes we might be the only, um, you know, successful or, uh, you know, the only adults in their lives that are setting a, a good example. So setting the example and leading by example is key, not only just, you know, the way you treat people, eating right, exercising, um, all facets of life, really. You, you need to set the example for the students because they're very observant, you know, even when you don't think they're paying attention, that they are. Um, so it's, it's very important to practice what you preach. And then I believe, uh, I believe structure is very important because it pro- provides a kind of a foundation and a rhythm, for, for, you know, that creates personal discipline and work ethic which then allows the students to kind of accomplish their own their own goals. I kind of see my class like an analogy bottle. Like the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes of class are always the same. Like we kind of have our, our, our rhythm that we go through. But the middle of the class is when we kind of do the fun stuff. Um, but just having that structure of knowing every day when they walk into class, you know, the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes are going to be exactly the same. They know what to expect. It helps, helps prepare them for what they're going to do during the day. Right. Right on. I think, uh, you know, establishing that, like, if you can get kids personal discipline early on, uh, it sets them up for success because so often nowadays uh, we live in a very instant gratification society so if we can kind of build that work ethic, you know, they'll have patience and they'll, they'll work towards their goals a lot easier. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and I like the way you said you, you, you talked about the personal discipline. It's not. I think a lot of times people hear the word discipline and they automatically think negative, but discipline is just simply the structure that it needs that everything needs in order for you to be successful. And 
students have to learn how to do that on their own, that responsibility. You know, I have a 12-year-old daughter, and I tell her all the time, my job is not to stop bad things from happening to you, because I can't. My job is to prepare you for when they happen and to be there to help you reflect and walk through it once they do happen, because they're going to happen. And I think giving her that opportunity to kind of see that you can't, some stuff, is, some stuff you can avoid, some stuff you can't. But how do you navigate once once it happens? I think that's where our kids need to really kind of gravitate to getting that understanding of what to do. Yeah, and, and so many of our kids, you know, they they're twelve years old and they're they're taking care of two other siblings because you know, mom, mom's working multiple jobs or maybe their parents, you know, aren't making the best decisions. So they're they're raising their own siblings. Um, so a lot of a lot of our students are in a really tough situation. So any time you can, you know, help them help themselves is it, a good thing. Awesome. So now that it's summertime for you, finally, uh, what is the importance of self-care for teachers, and what will you be doing to set yourself up for success for next year? Uh, I kind of see it, you know, just, like being an athlete, it's, we're kind of in our postseason right now. You know, it's time to kind of rest up a little bit, um, take care of things that, you know, you might have been neglecting. Like right now, I'm, I'm really working on my house because uh, I didn't really have time during the school year to do some big projects. And then towards, like, the second half of the summer, it kind of starts becoming the preseason. You know, now you're preparing for, for next year, next season. Um so during that time, I'll start to really focus on reading, planning, and just trying to learn uh, so much more to help me prepare for the next year. Right on. So, um, what is the best advice you were ever given, and who gave it to you? Um, you know, in, re- in regards to teaching, uh, my one of my best friends, who was a college rugby team and teammate of mine, and my college roommate. Uh, he is a PE teacher in Wisconsin, and he told me, uh, don't pick up the rope. Um, that was his saying of, you know, kids are going to bait you into getting a reaction all the time, uh, and especially where, where I work. You know, they're going to antagonize you or they're going to do things just because they want you to react, and don't give them that satisfaction. So, I think I took that pretty well this year. Uh, you know, people think just because I'm in the military, I yell and I scream. That's really not the case at all. Um, I only yelled twice this entire year. And once was I was I was faking it to make a point. And then the second time, it, there was a, a fight in the uh, the auditorium. So I had to yell to help break it up. You know, that was a big one for me. And then one of my uh, college professors and mentors, he said, you know, stay out of the teacher's lounge. Uh, because that's where... That's where a lot of the, the disgruntled teachers go to then complain, and they want to wallow in misery, and they want other people to feel the same way. And that's where a lot of the, the gossip and a lot of those things happen. So they out of the teacher's lounge. Yep. <laughs> Haven't heard either one of those, but I love them both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are both good pieces of advice. Moving forward and thinking about, you know, you know, you being in teaching, you know, for for the short period that you've been in, what is one thing that you wish parents knew about teaching? Uh, a great teacher is not a cure-all. Um, 
know, it, it's a it's a partnership, so it requires a lot of teamwork and a lot of communication. Um, that's something I really wish they they would understand. Uh, we only had nine out of 120 teachers show up to parent teacher conferences this year, so that was that was really frustrating. And of those nine that showed up, eight were ENL student parents. And their parents didn't even speak English, um, and we had no interpreters available. So we had to just kind of pull up the uh, Google Translate on the smartboard, and I would type it in, hit talk, and it would, you know, explain what I was trying. I was typing for them, so that's how we worked our parent-teacher conferences. And you know, even though those parents they don't speak English, they're they're involved in their their child's life. They're showing up to school. Um, there's a there's a TED talk by um, Helen Pearson, um, and it's she talks about how parent involvement is the number one indicator of child success, regardless of various demographics. It was like some uh, a 70 year study that they did, and the number one indicator of success for a child was parent involvement. No. Mm. So, uh, so that's something I want to work on. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it this year, but next year I have plans for um, doing parent meetings prior to the school year. So meeting with parents either you know at their home or at school or at a coffee shop and really sitting down with them before the school year to kind of build that relationship and build that rapport with the, the parents because they're, they're the center of influence for their, their child. So either influence the parent negatively or positively. I figure if you you get a good foot forward um, and you meet with them before the school year and you kind of build that relationship, you have a better chance of getting to that child. So that's something I'm planning on doing in the future. That's awesome. I think that's, um, you know, one of the things when I started, uh, I started out as an inclusion teacher and then I started teaching math, sixth grade math, and they gave me GT kids. And everybody was warning me, oh my God, the parents, you got to worry about the parents, the GT parents are this, the GT parents are that. So it kind of had a stigma. So I just simply started emailing teachers, I mean, emailing parents, texting parents, calling them, setting up meetings. And once I established a relationship with the parents, I realized as an educator, it's just equally as important for me to establish a rapport with that parent as it is for that student, if we want that student to be successful. Yeah, you know, definitely. It goes back to like that, that three cups of tea philosophy, you know. you, you got to mm-hmm. build, become almost family with those parents. Right. And then, again, like you said, it has to be a partnership. They have to see it as a partnership, that we're in this together. So what advice would you give to a teacher who is struggling? Um, you know, I'm, I'm still a junior teacher, so I'm still trying to learn as much as I can as well. Um, I would say, like any problem, um, find the root of the problem. Spend time trying to figure out what really is the problem. A lot of times with the students, um, oftentimes you think it's a behavioral thing. But maybe something's going on in their life. Maybe it's, you know, their parents are splitting up. Maybe their parents are going through divorce, those kind of things. So don't always assume it's just gonna. It's a behavioral issue. You guys really gotta focus and get to the root of the problem. And then uh, I would say there's there's experts all over your building. Every teacher has their own niche. Like for me, I really enjoy working with E and L and students because of my back 
love history. Um, so, like, I'm okay within those realms. And I, I talk to our E&L teachers all the time. And I, I'm always looking for tips and stuff. And I probably really annoy them, but um, it really helps me listening to those experts within the building. Um, my teaching mentor is famous within the district for her organization skills. So, PARS bring other teachers to her for advice all the time. And my biggest thing is would be, you know, find that expert in your building or your district. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you brought up the point of, you know, with students really finding the root of the problem, but I can attest myself as, as an educator, like when I was having problems, it was not usually what I thought it was. I mean, and, and for me it was, I was having a lot of kind of turbulence in my personal life and I thought that my school life was causing my turbulence in my personal life when I really had it backwards my my turb the turbulence of my personal life was causing me not to be the person I wanted to be in school and and I think as educators when we reflect on ourselves we got to make sure that we're really looking for the root of the problems that you know we're responsible for mm-hmm. yeah so as we as we finish up and let you get back to uh home home projects or whatever it is you got going today um what would you say is the best book you've read the last year? Oh, that's, uh, I, I'm a voracious reader. I'm always reading. Um, I think the, the best one I've, I've read over the past year that specifically helps with teaching is a, a book called The Power of Moments. It's just by uh, Chip Heath and Dan Heath. Um, and it's all about uh, why certain experiences have extraordinary impact. On, uh, on people, and it works really well for teaching. That's where I learned the, uh, the trip over the truth um, mentality. Um, it, it talks about how, you know, you ask a lot of, and it's not specifically for teaching, it's for really anything, but they use a lot of teaching analogies within the book. So, that, you know, they ask a lot of students, you ask any student, what, what was the most memorable thing, you know, from school? And they'll say, like, prom or athletics, stuff like that. So they offer a lot of suggestions and uh, studies and advice on how to make your classes a lot more memorable. Right. Um, and that's awesome. I, that actually is a book that's in my Audible um, shop that is on my list to read, so I'm excited. Glad yeah, to hear I'm definitely going to steal a lot of ideas from it. Yeah, awesome. So uh, what would you say is your proudest accomplishment to date? Um, you know, in life, I would say it would be uh, bringing all my guys home from Afghanistan. Uh, we were in a very rural and isolated, uh, obscure outpost in the mountains. Um, we were surrounded in outnumbered, and the uh, Special Forces team, the ODA, that was there before us, took uh, 80% casualties. And teaching, I would say it's just building relationships students that I thought I, wouldn't, I really wouldn't be able to reach. Uh, that's the biggest thing. Right. Well, before we get you out of here, we definitely want to extend our thanks both uh, both for your service and for your for your time this afternoon, man. It's been a real pleasure to get to talk to you. Uh, I appreciate it, guys, and uh, thanks for paying your taxes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So uh, before we get you out of here... Um, 
The last question we've got for you is, what do you want your lasting legacy to be? You know, being that it, it, I feel like it's kind of rare that you see a lot of military veterans become teachers. You know, I would like to be seen as a, a thought leader and an advocate for encouraging more veterans to become teachers. Um, and then also to inspire students kind of to follow their own dreams, not what society expects of them or, or their teachers or their parents kind of follow their own dreams. Awesome, man. Well, we are so appreciative and thankful for you uh, taking some time out with us to come on the podcast. Thanks, guys. It was a, it was a great honor, and I uh, look up to both of you. Thank you.